Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Our special guest for this episode is Professor Turi King from the Department of Genetics and Genome Biology at the University of Leicester. Professor King most famously led the Genome Sequencing Project on Richard III and was also on the team commissioned by author Patricia Cornwell to examine the feasibility of finding the exact burial location, and determine the probable current state of the remains of Mary Jane Kelly. Uh, Professor King has a very impressive resume that I don't have time to go into in its entirety here, but I encourage you to look her up online and read it all. Needless to say, we are very pleased to have her on the show today. And our roundtable consists of several Ripper researchers and writers, and rather than introduce you all, I just ask you to introduce yourselves by saying your name and whatnot before you chime in with your first question or comment, if that's okay with everyone else. And everybody, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'd like to start off by giving a brief public timeline of the shawl, i.e. when it first came to Ripperology's attention, which was some 30 years ago and the voyage the various pieces of the shawl took before the main piece was acquired by Russell Edwards and tested by Jari Luhalin. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. No one seems to really know. Or Yari, I think. <laughs> Yari, okay. Possibly, yeah. Um, around 1988, Paul Harrison, while researching Jack the Ripper, The Mystery Solved, received a tip that John and Janice Dowler, the owners of a video rental shop in Essex, had a shawl that had once belonged to Catherine Eddowes. What the Dowlers actually had was two pieces that had been put into a single frame. When speaking to them, they said they received it from David Melville Hayes, the great-great-nephew of Amos Simpson, in exchange for a copy of the first edition of the Radio Times magazine. What Haynes had done was cut two pieces from a larger parent piece of the shawl, which measured in its original state eight feet long and two feet wide, and these, and framed these smaller pieces and then gave them to the Dowlers in a nutshell. Later, around 1996, the Dowlers sold it off to an antique dealer, the framed pieces, um, who in turn sold them to Andy and Sue Parlor. As for the rest of the shawl, in about 1993, David Hayes loaned it to the Black Museum, who had Sotheby's look at it, and Sotheby's dated it to the early 1900s. Meanwhile, the parlors who had the framed pieces of the shawl were trying to track down the main piece and they eventually located David Melville Haynes, who told them that it was at the Black Museum. And the piece on loan to the Black Museum and owned by Hayes was what Russell Edwards bought at the 2007 auction. And the parlors still own the two pieces of the shawl in the frame. And um, before bidding on the large piece, Edwards contacted the Black Museum to inquire about the shawl. And that's when he was told by Alan McCormick from the Black Museum that the Ripper case had been solved and that the murderer was Aaron Kosminski. So, Professor King, when the book Naming Jack the Ripper was released in 2014, 
Ripperologists, followed by your colleagues, identified an error in the nomenclature that led to a misinterpretation of the uniqueness of a mutation present in the mtDNA sample that connected that sample to a descendant of Catherine Eddowes. Jari has since corrected this error in the paper published this past week, and by doing so, he considerably, from what I can tell as a layman, um, he considerably widens the potential donor pool now for the mtDNA, which, from what I understand, makes the provenance of the shawl improving its presence in Mitre Square on the 30th of September 1888, all that more crucial. Now, you've been fairly outspoken with the problems you've found in this recent publication. So can you summarize those issues for us? And then I'll just open it up to the panel to ask uh, their questions. Sure. So, I mean, there are a number of issues with the paper. I mean, for all we know, Kosminski was Jack the Ripper. But what this paper doesn't do is actually provide the evidence to show that that's the case. And there's a lot of problems with the way they've... So I suppose the best way to explain is when you write a scientific paper, what you do is you go, this is what we wanted to look at. This is how we've done it. And this is what we found. Now, they've only gone part way in both of those kind of crucial things. Normally, what you would do is you would publish all how you did your experiments. They don't do that. Um, you would publish all of your results. The other thing that you would do in a particular case like this, and certainly something we did with the Richard III case, was that you do the testing in two separate labs independently to confirm that you're getting the same results in two separate labs. Because one of the biggest things you're obviously worried about is contamination. So if you've got contamination either from yourself breathing on it or one of the laboratory technicians or somebody who's touched the shawl previously, etc., you want to be able to kind of start to rule that out. You should be running negative controls. So um, you would be running the experiments with water, essentially, um, and with reagents that you are using to ensure that you are not getting the results that you're seeing are not from the reagent, there's been some quite interesting cases where they've realized um, in forensic cases that actually what they've been testing is somebody who was actually in the factory that made the tubes that the experiments were, were actually run in. Um, they found that a number of cases they kept having the same individual was popping up all over in Germany and various different cases in Germany. Um, and then they realized that actually it went back to the factory where the tubes were being made. I mean, that's how easy it is to contaminate things. Um, so they haven't from what they say, they haven't done that. Um, we don't know if it's been carried out in a proper forensic laboratory. Um, Yari is not a forensic scientist, um, and so we're concerned about that. I mean, certainly the error in nomenclature may come from the fact that he simply doesn't have the expertise um, in this particular area, which he came, how he came up with something which was, so when, you know, when we look at it, we go, okay, yeah, that's exactly what that is, but he's called it as a particular wrong thing. Um, and the fact that they haven't published the results so that other people can go and have a look at it and see whether or not they're happy with their conclusions. Again, it looks like they're hiding stuff. And that is, is my main concern with this because there is somebody out there who has given their DNA for this study. Um, it's, they've been told that it's one of their ancestors who was Jack the Ripper, which is quite a major thing to be told. But the paper doesn't support 
that. Um, so there's some concerns around kind of the ethics that it's kind of gone wrong with this paper as well. Does that make sense, all of that? Yes, it does. Um, Good. Real quick about the, the reason that they gave in the paper for keeping the actual numbers um, private is due to the Data Protection Act and that they um, are obvious, it's information contained about living people, the donors mm. for the samples. Can you comment on well, so that what, excuse? Yeah, so um, the thing is, is about mitochondrial DNA and about the resolution at the typing that they have done, is it's not uh, the sort of resolution that can be used to identify an individual particularly, because there can be you know thousands of people who all have the same mitochondrial DNA type showing this, resolution of typing. Um, certainly for the Richard III case, we discussed everything with all of our participants and um, the ability to um, publish all of the information um, because we would need it for the paper to, to back it up. Um, and everyone was fine about that because none of what we published, and actually I published, or we published entire mitochondrial sequences for Michael Ibsen and Wendy Duldig. Um, they are all online. Everything's online. Um, and same for Y chromosome profiles of living male line, living relatives of Richard. So uh, I'm, hmm, I find that one a little bit uh, difficult because, as I say, it's not going to individually identify somebody. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it was something that I, it would have been talked through with the participants to begin with, um, with the whole project. Can I, uh, can I jump in yeah. with a question? This is, yeah. is John Bissier. Um, what you mentioned that this isn't actually uh, Jari's of expertise, yeah. Um, so w w what field of science is he an expert in then? Well, so this is the thing. So he does um, reproduction and early development, um, apparently. So he's not, I mean, when, when I first heard about this, I thought, well, I have never heard of this man um, in the forensics field. So it's as if, I suppose, I decided to go off and do embryology and publish a paper in it, and I didn't publish all the information about the work that I did, and then it, it would just, it would, I, I just wouldn't go there. <laughs> the other thing that's also very interesting about this paper is two authors now, that's, again, very, very odd. Normally what you would do is it's not just two people doing the work. The Richard III paper, you have technicians, you have other people, you have a separate lab that runs it, you have um, statisticians, you have experts from various sort of fields that all come together. You all check, you know, you're checking each other's work. It, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, you do stuff separately in another lab, again, to double check to make sure about contamination. The fact that there's only two authors on this just is really, really odd for a scientific paper. And the fact that they haven't belt and braced it by having a separate lab doing it, again, that's another red flag for me. Can I, can I jump in with another quick question? Sorry for that. Yeah, yeah, no, crazy. The, um, so the, the paper they submitted was to a uh, respected journalist. Well, mm. is there so what would the normal submission criteria, would the journal normally pick yeah. up on it or? So the normally what happens is you submit a paper to a journal. They decide whether or not they think it's going to possibly be publishable. They then send it out to usually at least two, if not three or four reviewers. Now, being on the other side of it, I have had papers that have come to me and they've said, can you review this paper? And 
they it's something which it's not quite my my area so i'd feel like i'm not i'm not really the appropriate person to comment on that so i will write back and i will say i don't feel this is quite my area to to um respond to but this person is your expert who you want in this so i would suggest going into that so it really depends on who they sent the paper out to for referee um, how many people were they geneticists were they forensic geneticists um and yeah because my i if i had seen well i did see an early version of this paper and i said at the moment it's unpublishable it needs all of the experimental data putting in it's um weird that there's you know one or two authors on it um has a second lab done the work etc cetera, etc cetera. but it seems to have come out pretty much as is uh, and as far as i can tell it seems to be just sort of an update of what seemed to come out in 2014 which i i never read i saw the newspaper articles but i um i haven't read the book or anything like that so it's yeah uh, again so i a number of us scientists are are considering writing a letter to the journal to ask uh, to you know point out that there are a number of errors with this uh, because certainly no one in that i know of in the field would ever have passed this that uh if i may interrupt um but this is Brian Young. I'm a, a writer and a researcher and a, and a science nerd and a very big fan of yours. So thank you for doing this. <laughs> I uh, wanted to follow up on, on, on what John had said that um, not only does it appear that the data is hidden that they did. I mean, I read through it and I couldn't find it. Mm. And I was going to ask how would it have been able to get published in the journal, but you just answered that. Yeah. But my question would be, as you said, and what I've been telling people for the past week is this seems to be the same thing that we got four years ago, but they claim new research was done, but don't even mention the fact that the people whose DNA are used was also used four years ago and have been around that shawl the whole time. So doesn't that just screen contamination? Well, this is one of the things I'm, I would be very, very worried about anyways. And because they don't publish the data, you can't... Um, you can't sort of double check it. So the fact that, that numerous people will have handled this over the years, um, technicians, and then just in the lab situation, you'll have technicians. I mean, obviously, Russell Edwards has been holding it. Um, it's it's a real concern that if they have if they have done new research on it in that that time period, and the the relatives have been in contact with it or even in the room with it because all you need to do is breathe on it and you put your DNA on it, then that is very, very worrying. The other thing that I found quite interesting is that either they've done a typo or they don't know their inheritance of mitochondrial DNA, but they do talk about how they have tested descendants of the suspect. Now, that's not possible to do mitochondrial DNA because mitochondrial DNA is passed down through the female line, so obviously Konsminski couldn't have passed it on. Again, it's, it's sloppy. That's what bothers me. It's sloppy. They and they don't actually say how these individuals are related. So again, in the Richard the Third paper, we put we we published the genealogies with you know we we talked to the participants. We said, are you happy to be identified? If not, are you happy with how we we present this? And it was very much a discussion with the individuals who were involved um, with the project, who were good enough to take part in the in the project. I felt very protective of them because they have been very kind enough to give their DNA samples. So you kind of want to look after them because they've been good enough to do this. Um, Rob House um, might be able to shed some light on the Kosminski uh, family connection to the donor, right, Rob? Um, yeah. So um, 
Hi, this is Robert House. Hi. Um, hi. Um, yeah, so the, the DNA uh, from the Kosminski descendant comes from a matrilineal descendant of Aaron Kosminski's sister, Matilda. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, th this was Chris Phillips and I did, uh, you know, a lot of research um, on his family tree. And um, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think this is one of the only uh, descendants of, you know, one of the Kosminski siblings who was matrilineal. So I obviously don't know about the science, um, but it, it does come from Aaron Kosminski's sister and Aaron Kosminski himself obviously had no descendants. Yeah. And that is kind of crucial that they, I mean, that's a very crucial distinction scientifically. That's a very crucial distinction that it comes not from Kosminski, but from Kosminski's sister's descendants. But they, they, they haven't put that in the paper. And again, that's just sloppy um, to not talk about it properly, to not lay it out properly and even lay the genealogies out, even in a very kind of anonymized form. You would think as part of possibly supplementary data, you might put this information in just to you want to with a, with a paper kind of, I suppose, um, as controversial as this, as, it, as it's going to be, you want to belt and brace and make sure that you are giving all of the information there to show that you've really done it properly. Right. So I, let me just ask a follow up question then, because uh, this is something this is a question that I think has been raised by people on the message boards and maybe I'm just not clear on it. I think maybe, sure. maybe you said this already, but when when a paper uh, goes through the peer review process, I think some have, some people have suggested that the people who reviewed it may have seen a different version of the paper Ooh. that had more information in it um, than, you know, ended up being in the published paper and, you know, possibly because of reasons of confidentiality or whatever. Um, is that something that is a normal practice or is it assumed that the paper as published is the same uh, version typically as uh, what the people who reviewed it would have seen. Yeah, I'm. I've not heard of that before. Um, maybe I have a limited experience, but I've not heard of that before. Um, and it would be something that presumably, if that was the case, you would want to make that upfront obvious upfront in the paper um, that it's gone past this review process, but I've, I've not heard of anything like that before. Um, and okay, certainly, so. yeah, I mean, that is, that would be odd. Okay. So it's kind of falls into the same category of just not stating things clearly in the paper. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to throw in, um, I know you and Chris Phillips have gone back and forth and Chris, uh, you know, he, he really has a much better handle on all this DNA stuff than I do. Um, and I just, you know, I just wonder if you could kind of go over um, some of the stuff that you and Chris talked about and the, you know, the specifics of the DNA uh, as presented in the paper and what you see as red flags or, you know, problems. Yeah. So, with, I mean, you know, with, with the back, you know, going forwards and backwards and 92%, if you could just get into that more yeah. explicitly. So what they so that backwards and forwards bit 
So what they are trying to do is they're trying to look at um, segments of the mitochondrial DNA. And so the bits that they have been looking at have been somewhere in around sort of 100 letters long. And what you do in the first instance is it's like you're making a photocopy. And so you're making a photocopy of this segment that's about 100 letters long. And you just make millions and millions of copies of it. Now, um, then what you want to do is be able to read it. And the way you do that is by sequencing. And normally what you do to make sure that you're getting the right, you know, you're, you're absolutely sure about your sequence, is you read it. It's like, a, I suppose, a sentence. You read it the sentence in one direction, and then you read it backwards. But you know you're reading it backwards, so you can go, okay, I'm reading that backwards, so I'm going to turn it around so it's the right way around. And you should have exactly the same sentence, whether or not you read it forwards or backwards. But that's not what it says in this thing. So um, the, the line which talks about how um, they have got this difference uh, going forwards and backwards, that is showing me that they don't have a, they don't have a consensus sequence. Um, does that make sense? So what, what you do is you, you, when they do these, they talk about how they've made these copies. When they talk about the second stage of PCR amplification in this Edwards um, book, and they talk about how they do the, the sequencing, the second stage, that's the sequencing. When they read it going one direction, they find a 100% match. When they find it reading the other direction, they find a 99.2% match. Now, that's telling me that they're getting a different sentence when they read it forward versus when they read it backwards. But it should be the same sentence both directions. Does that make sense? I, I guess my I guess my question would just be, you know, for the layman, uh, yeah. what what is the conclusion that you draw from that? Is it that the is it that there is not a match or is it that there's contamination and we're looking at different well, samples? They don't tell you. So they don't tell you what's going on there. They just tell you that if they read the sentence one direction, they get a different result from if they read it the other direction. Now, you shouldn't be getting that. So something is going on with the sequencing. Um, and I don't know what it is because they don't explain what it is. Is it that the sequence is incredibly ropey? So when they're trying to read it, it's actually very difficult to do. And so that possibly when they are trying to say what letter is particularly there, they, they think it's probably this. And then it turns out that it it's, doesn't match the sequence as it should be. Is that making sense? It's very hard to, it's hard to explain without pictures. <laughs> um, I've, you don't really know what's going on because they don't tell you. But the fact that he is not getting um, a match, a matching sequence going forward or backwards tells me there's something wrong with what they're doing. But you don't know what it is because they don't tell you what, what's going on. I think this is, this is part of the problem is the, the, the data and their experimental methods are not discussed there. It's like they don't want people to double check on them, which is the thing that's very, very worrying about this whole thing. And uh, <clears throat> Brian Young again. Um, that I was as I was reading it, I was wondering. And they said they pulled the Edo's DNA from what they assume was a blood splatter, and the Kosminski DNA from what they seems to be a semen splatter, but without any semen sequence. So, I mean, would that 
affect the, the, the results of their data? They don't even know what the sample is that they were using? Yeah, so you would expect um, that... So semen themselves don't contain mitochondrial DNAs in the head. They contain it in the tail. So you would expect to be getting um, mitochondrial sequence from that and any cells, so epithelial cells that have come along with it. Um, it is very odd in terms of when they are doing the DNA and they're talking about um, what somebody's hair and eye color is because they do very few of the markers that you can use. Um, they don't talk about, again, they don't give the information about how they have done the sequencing that's not in there um it's it's very very so they are getting dna that's not just mitochondrial dna that presumably is from the sperm um but yeah no it, it's and, and from sorry from the epithelial cells so it's one of these things that it is um very yeah it's it's very very odd uh the whole thing is that they just do not explain what they're doing so you don't know how they're getting the results that they do yeah, it, it almost seems like it's uh, it's meant to be completely faith based, and it's like the shawl of Turin. And uh, <laughs> if you believe it, it's true. Well, and I find it really so. They're they're using single cells, so the risk of contamination is massive because all you need to do is get one of your cells in there, and you're going to be getting mixed results. So I would really want to know what was in their control. So one of the things that we did with the Richard III case was you will never get completely get rid of contamination. So you estimate by looking at the number of sequences that don't look like they come from Richard, how much contamination you've got that hasn't been estimated. Um, it's, it's a very, very odd paper, particularly given the public interest in it. You would want to make sure you were belt embraced with it. I would have thought. Uh, let me uh, jump in and see if you can explain one thing that I'm kind of confused about. Um, yeah. And um, if you've read um, Chris Phillips' paper on the Russian sequence. Mm, I had a look through, yeah. Where he, um, back again, like you had said earlier, there's very little, except for the correction of the 314C versus 315C error, there's very little difference between what was presented in naming Jack the Ripper in 2014 and what we're getting in this new paper. Things that they said that they were going to correct back in 2014 are re-emerging in this new paper uncorrected without any explanation. Like yeah. the 92.9% um, thing, I believe. But um, but back in 2014, when they identified the T1A1 um, sequence the haliotype um, as belonging to a Russian Jew from the shawl yeah. and compared that to a database kept at the National Center for Biotechnology Information mm -hmm. to bolster their suggestion that the T1A1 found on the shawl did come from a Russian Jew. It turns out that the donor for that DNA in the National Center for Biotech Information was not a Jew that, and was, in fact, a Gentile. And it was Chris Phillips who contacted the person who donated their the DNA um, sample to that database that was used in the test. So starting from there, 
does but so let me see if I'm understanding this correctly then. Does does that that doesn't necessarily am I right in saying that that doesn't necessarily mean that T, the T1A1 found on the shawl isn't from a Russian Jew? Um, okay. I mean, how can yeah. I'm, I'm kind of confused on the comparison between the sample on the shawl with the sample that they thought was from a Russian Jew on the database, which turned out not to be, and how that could relate to the ethnicity of the donor for the shawl. If you, you could say, me. yeah, next to nothing about, well, not next to nothing, but it is very, very um, difficult to look at a mitochondrial DNA type and, as, and say, it, it, they're from this population and, and this is their religion. You just, you can't do that. There may be particular mitochondrial DNA types that have been associated with particular populations that being slightly higher frequencies within those particular populations. But that doesn't mean that if you find somebody with that particular mitochondrial DNA type that they belong to that population, not, not at all. Um, I mean, you see it a lot with the um, genetic genealogy companies, particularly sort of a few years ago where they would look at somebody's Y chromosome type, for example, and say that you're a Danish Viking or a Norse Viking. And I would just kind of want to shake my head um, because you, it would be a particular Y chromosome type that might be say at higher frequency in Norway, but you find it all over Europe. So it's the sort of thing that you can't look at a particular mitochondrial DNA type and say that this is the person's background and ethnicity or anything like that. The fact that that they say that there is, um, when they have put this particular type into the database, it has happened to get a particular hit, and it just happened to be from a Russian lady. Um, and that's it. I mean, you did, the hits that you will get is that if you put this into a particular database, it depends on how big the database size is, who's in there. Um, you know, it could be that actually it's found at very high frequencies in, in a different part of Europe, but they just haven't got any other um, people in the database that are from that area. So you have to be very, very careful by like, trying to infer uh, something about a person's background just from a mitochondrial DNA type. Um, you can do it um, much more, well, not specifically, but... So a lot of the ancestry testing companies, what they will do is they will look across your entire genome and then they will look at little segments of your DNA. And from that, they will be able to say broadly where your ancestry is from within the last sort of two to 300 years. Um, but uh, again, it's going to give you a very, very broad area. It's based on what the databases contain, how many individuals from particular areas, et cetera, et cetera. So this is quite common. You can have your DNA done by Ancestry.com, and it gives you your kind of your ethnicity or your ancestry. But that can change in a year's time because their their DNA database has grown. It's not going to be massively different, but it's it changes. So it's it's. But that's using whole genome data, not a mitochondrial DNA type, which, again, only tells you about your maternal line and not the rest of your ancestry. Um, so you have to be, yeah, you have to be extreme right. with this sort of thing. Right. So, so being an Ashkenazi Jew would be identifiable yeah. in a Y chromosome um, mm -hmm. from, from, from the male, theoretically, but... That's not something they would even be able to um, compare, obviously, to the female line of descendants 
from Kosminski's sister because Y chromosomes aren't passed. Yeah, down and to also the women. you can say that you can use the Y chromosome and say that somebody is Ashkenazi Jewish. You can say that oh, okay, they have a Y chromosome type that tends to be found at slightly higher frequencies in populations that are Ashkenazi, but it doesn't mean they've got Ashkenazi ancestry because you will find it in other populations that not aren't Ashkenazi Jewish, and you don't know how it, this person has inherited this. So you have to be, this whole thing about tying mitochondrial DNAs or Y chromosome types to particular cultural historical groups is very, very problematic mm. at the individual level. So, yeah, I would take that with a ginormous pinch of salt, um, really. Well, I mean, the ideal thing would be that um, people test the living relatives who are alive today now um, to get an idea as to how common their mitochondrial DNA types are. That would then say, yes, this is a you know a rarer type or a more common type, um, and then ideally uh, do DNA analysis of the shawl, but I, I'm highly skeptical whether or not that would be even useful because I, I suspect it's highly, highly contaminated and you, you simply wouldn't get sensible results out of it. That's my guess. Hi, it's Steve Blomer here, um, researcher, and in a previous life, I worked in medical research for 35 years. Oh, wow. What I found really interesting about their preamble and going through their paper was their continual reference to they're really just testing a procedure out then and the results are sort of like a byproduct of the procedure but they don't really give any details of this great procedure they're really carrying out and I find that really really odd. I found it really really odd too. (laughs) I don't know anything about this procedure other than what I have been um, reading in this. Uh, Yeah and this that area is not my area and so I would not be happy to comment other than I was a I was a bit skeptical where it it talks about flicking single cells into tubes and I thought oh my goodness I would find that um, very uh, (laughs) nerve-wracking I think to do that because they're they're physically propelling the cell upwards off the microscope glass to the cap of the capture tube. I I yes I don't know they're they're dealing with at such a small level and as I say it's with single cells that are where the DNA you would expect to be degraded. All you need is a is a single cell from a living individual and you will have contamination all over the place. So it's it's a concern. Yeah, I I, I what I, what really bothers me about this paper, for all I know. Um, they have they have gone through and they have done a proper study, but it really doesn't look like it from this paper uh, because they simply don't publish what they have been doing. And as I say, they haven't had a second lab um, confirm it either, which is another concern. So well, that's the, the my technique is what they term DNA vacuuming, wasn't it? Just to clarify. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't say I've ever done DNA vacuuming before. I, I know that that, that there is um that there are there is some forensics in this sort of this thing sort of in thing. terms of trying to be able to um, vacuum DNA from say fingerprints for example um, this sort of stuff is going on um, but I'm I'm yeah I'm very concerned about this sort of single cell analysis particularly if it's not been done in in a proper forensic lab and and not repeated. Do you want to um, do you want to talk a little bit about that little colored chart 
Yeah. Uh, and the 99.2% figure, which I think Chris suggested, and I, and I think it's not clear in the paper, but he, he was thinking it might represent a mismatch in a segment of length of 125. Um, and he said that, um, you know, although despite they said they got a match in one direction, not the other, the way they presented in the paper is a match. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? All? Yeah. So if I was getting that sort of data where I read it in one direction and I'm not getting the same sequence reading it in the other direction, I would um, try to work out what's going on, but I would leave it out of the analysis because you can't call it. I mean, it's like they, they would like to call it as the 100% match and versus the 99 whatever percent match. But you can't choose which one you want to use. You have to go with... You know, if that's giving inconsistent results, you have to leave it out of the the paper or try and work out what's going on. Um, so I that would be concerning if they have um, decided to go with the, well, let's just go with the 100% thing just because we prefer that over the 99 whatever percent. I'm, I'm guessing that the little boxes and the different colors are different, um, what we would call SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphisms where they, you know, where there's a, a particular letter in the DNA sequence and there are regions of the mitochondrial DNA where people differ between one another. And so I'm guessing that each of those little blocks represent one of those letter differences. But again, they don't specify that, which is a little bit worrying. Um, yeah, they don't, and they don't say which ones they are. I mean, some of the mutations that you find in mitochondrial DNA are incredibly common. Um, so what you'd be interested in looking at is do, say, for example, the um, victim from the evidence and the victim maternal sharing a mitochondrial DNA SNP that's quite rare. That would be interesting um, and would lend it more weight for example. So I, I am, that is the, that is the problem. You, we don't quite know exactly what it is that this is showing. I am guessing that they are SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphism differences, but because they don't tell us, we don't know for sure. Um, and we, and they certainly don't tell us which ones they are, which again, for mitochondrial DNA uh, analysis is actually very useful. To and that's referring to the uh, suspect um, Kosminski's descendant in the suspect sample on the shawl, correct? Yeah. They, so at the moment, they have got, from the suspect maternal and suspect from evidence, they have got two differences. Um, and so that, again, I, that is not something that I would expect. And, because, and they don't tell us the number of generations. Um, but that is not something that I would expect in what is it going to be? Probably about three, four generations, something like that. Yeah. See, this is where you can't make any decisions because, uh, well, you can make a decision. That is that is completely unexpected, given that you have got not that many generations between the um, maternal line relative and the suspect. You would not expect to find two differences in the DNA, even in this this relatively short. Um, sequence so yeah <laughs> this whole paper just makes me go ah <laughs> because it's just um yeah it is it, it's such bad science uh that um yeah well uh, by having this error in the suspect dna it kind of makes a moot point about their um correcting of 
the 314.c versus 315.c yeah. error so with Edo's yeah. um, comparison. Um, uh. Because in the initial, in the 2014, when the error was discovered, they presented the incorrectly the mutation that they discovered on the mtdna for edos um led a probability of one in every 299,000 people perhaps sharing this specific mutation that they incorrectly identified but now that, right. that they've corrected it um it becomes something more along the lines of one in every 13,000 individuals or something yeah um, See, again, but even that you, is yeah. kind of meaningless when the Kosminski DNA is thrown into such question. Yeah. Right? So they give the frequency um, for the suspect was 1.9 times 10 to the 2, so that's nearly two people in 100. Uh, 1.3 times 10 to the minus 3 for the victim, so that's um, you know just over 1 in 1,000 people. 1 in 1,000. <laughs> Statistically, for, for, for Edo's, uh, yes, yeah. So, statistically, based on what they are saying in this, again, statistically, um, yeah, there's concerns with this. Um, be, not only have they do they seem to not have a match, um, the you know, the difference from one in 290,000 to sort of two in a hundred and and just over one in a thousand, um. Yeah, it, it's it, there's a lot of problems with this paper, um, and as I say, I'm very concerned that they don't actually have a match between the maternal and the uh, the maternal descendant of Kosminski's sister and the suspect. They've got differences there all already, so it's um, you would expect a, a a perfect match, probably maybe one difference, not two. That would be very, very surprising to get. But again, if they gave the details about where those differences are, you could actually do the calculations to show how unlikely it would be to have the the differences at those two um, particular uh, markers. So, and, and what they try to um, save face, kind of in in all of this, is by saying, well. But the, the probability of having both of these types um, of samples on uh, the shawl present at the crime scene um, is statistically unusual. But I don't even see that that would necessarily. Yeah, well, be and the because case. you. I mean, if, she, if they would have taken her, her apron. That, I mean, if there was a piece of evidence that existed that we knew had come from Catherine Eddowes, for instance, like a, her apron or one of her handkerchiefs or anything that yeah. had a similar, had, that had two similar samples with the probabilities, shared probabilities, that would, well, that would still be kind of meaningless as to who the donors of those samples could have been. And and the problem is as well is that because you you don't know what the sequence is you can't be sure that actually they've done that properly um, in terms of the the, st the stats that they're getting back and the frequencies of these particular mitochondrial DNA types because they don't tell you what they are so you can't go and look it up yourselves so it it's yeah it's um, I'd be really interested to know who reviewed the paper and whether or not they were forensic geneticists. I was just wondering the same thing. Is that something that you can typically find out, or 
or not? Um, no, so usually it's an anonymous reviewing. You don't know who your reviewers are when you, um, so it's, it's when you, so when you submit a paper, you can say, um, you know, I suggest these reviewers. Um, you can do that. The journal doesn't have to use that. They can use different reviewers. You can even suggest people who you don't want to have review a particular paper. Again, the the journal doesn't have to take that. They can they can go with what they want. But I would be extremely interested to know who has reviewed this paper and what their their area of expertise is. Um, just because there's so many there's so many holes in it. Um, and so many things that need clarifying that it certainly, I mean, I would have gone back and said, well, and uh, you know, it's unpublishable until they add this, this information and it can be checked. Um, yeah. And as a minimum, not to mention trying a second lab <laughs> would be the other one to do. And you had mentioned at the beginning that you um, and possibly with some of your colleagues were going to write. Uh, we're th thinking about writing a letter uh, to the Journal of Forensic Science. What what kind of questions would you ask, and would would they? Do you b believe that they would uh, would provide a response? Well, I think so. The letter would be in in scientific a scientific one, pointing out the various issues with the academic paper. Um, to, and so this is probably going to be Walter Parson and I and possibly another couple of colleagues just to say that we're, you know, we're concerned that this has been published, um, given that there are a number of issues around it. And um, just pointing out the various issues with the, the data. Um, we're not sure what will happen with that, whether or not there will be a response um, from the journal. But we do feel that the paper is so the paper's got so many issues with it. And I suppose one of the things that kind of concerns us is that you've got a number of us forensic scientists who obviously want to do things. You know, we do things absolutely by the book and we make sure it's, you know, absolutely as watertight as we can make it. And then to have this sort of thing being published when really it shouldn't have been, is um, you, you don't want to be cast in the same light um, in terms of, of how rigorous you carry out the scientific study, uh, which they it doesn't appear that they have done. There's a, yeah, I, I, I'm still very, very surprised that this paper has been published. Um, and I, I hope it's not that somebody's sort of run away with just the, the fact that it would be of huge public interest um, at the expense of scientific rigor. Well, I mean, the the newspapers are obviously very happy to uh, yeah. publish any, any you know any any article saying that the case has been solved because you know because DNA and then you know they see a paper yeah. published and they think oh great you know. oh that's it yeah yeah no that that that's a really that's a really interesting thing that's kind of happened with this and it, as far as I can tell it hasn't as you say moved on really from the twenty fourteen thing so it's like they're just repeating what already happened a few years ago with this one. Um, that is the other thing. So normally um, uh, papers have to be novel. Um, so it can't have been something that's been published previously. So for example, with the Richard III case, I was in a very unusual position in that normally what happens is you do all of the research, um, it, you write it all up, it goes up for peer review, and then you publish it, and then there's the press interest. But because there had been a television crew that had been brought in by one of the um, people from the Richard III Society, and they had filmed us all along, and they wanted the paper, the, the program to go out at a particular point. They didn't want to wait for all of the genetic scientific data. What I had done was basically this. 
I had done um, the HVS1 and HVS2, and there was a perfect match. And I had to ring up the journals and say, I am really sorry, but this is the way it's going at the moment. And they were very understanding. They said, okay, all you can say is that there is a DNA match, but you cannot say anything else about how you got there until the paper is published. And so I came in for a lot of stick, quite rightly, because it was sort of um, publishing by press. But then we backed it up with a paper which was absolutely belt-braced, watertight things so that when it was published, we didn't just do HBS1-2, we did the entire mitochondrial DNA sequence, we did, um, interestingly, you know, we did hair and eye color, we did the Y chromosome. And the other thing that we did was it wasn't just the genetic data on its own, we did a Bayesian statistical analysis of all of the evidence to be able to to bring that to bear onto whether or not the statistics showed that these were the remains of Richard III. And that came back with a, um, a likelihood ratio of 6.7 million to one. Um, so when we did the, we didn't do the genetics just in isolation. We did it alongside all of the other evidence, which again is not something they have particularly done here. Because if, if you are going to look at the, the evidence regarding the shawl and its provenance, my understanding is that is extremely ropey as well. So all they've done is, is sort of a genetic evidence. They haven't even published all of the genetic evidence or how they did it, but then have come to this conclusion, but without any kind of um, robust statistical analysis around all of it as well. <clears throat> there was discussion about uh, the dye in the shawl being water-soluble as part of the, the this research proving the who the shawl belonged to. Is that something even appropriate for geneticists to discuss in a in a peer reviewed paper? Uh, it's not something. So it's so when when we did the paper for Richard III, for example, we did discuss all of the elements, um, and but it, it's kind of the way they've done it is slightly ad hoc in that they'll bring in some bits of evidence, but not other bits of evidence, and it's um, yeah, it's not something that we would have necessarily. It is something. It's part of the evidence, but they don't lend any weight to it or anything like that. Does that make? Yeah. Does that make sense? It's. It is a little bit of an odd thing to do to bring in that particular piece of evidence, but not that. You know, we don't know. For example, um, my understanding of the provenance of the shawl is the chap who it belonged to. There was no reason for him even to be in the area on that night. They don't discuss that bit, do they? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it's very ad hoc in terms of the bits of evidence that they bring in to support their case. They don't kind of treat all of it. So one of the things that we found was obviously, and I, I know I go back to Richard III, but it, it's something where we really, it's a similar thing in terms of we belt and brace. The Y chromosome data did not match. The uh, male line relatives did not match the skeletal remains. And so you have to, to factor that into your calculation, the fact that that points away from this being Richard III. You have to factor in the, okay, so what are the false paternity rates? Um, and you factor that into the calculation to, to still come up with a proper statistic as to how likely this is. So if they're going to bring in certain bits of evidence and not other bits of the evidence that are contrary to what they want, which is what we made sure we did. I mean, that that's another thing which is a bit of a red flag for me is that they seem to bring in some bits but not other bits. It, it almost to be it almost appears to be sensationalism in 
peer-reviewed science, which, I mean, it it's worked. So I mean, it got headlines all over the world, and I, I alone, and I'm sure everybody on this panel received hundreds of texts and emails and phone yeah. calls about it, and, oh, they solved the case, your job is done, and uh, so whatever it was, it worked, but I, I still don't understand how that passed the, I don't. The, the journal and got published. I genuinely have no idea, and I am just as stumped as you are. <laughs> and I, I, again, you hope that the the reviewers that it were sent to weren't swayed by the fact that it was a big case. If this wasn't their area of expertise, you would hope that they would still go, this looks really, I mean, inside they might be going, wow, this looks really cool, and I would love to read this. However, this is not my area of expertise, so I can't really do that. And that they that would then say, yeah, the person to send this to would be this um or this person or these set of people or whatever so i we genuinely don't know what has happened and i certainly hope it wasn't that um well they they alluded yeah. in the in the paper itself they alluded to now this this will be of interest to not only forensic scientists but true crime aficionados um and then and then they throw in the um hair color and eye color um as if we know what hair color and eye color um, Jack the Ripper had, which we don't. And, um, yeah, which we don't. And it came back as brown hair and brown eyes, which is hardly <laughs> defining. Right. And they, um, <laughs> they also um, allude to the switch between the provenance stating that this um, shawl belonged to Catherine Eddowes to Russell Edwards then uh, changing that to, well, maybe the shawl belonged to Aaron Kosminski because of Edo's probably considering she had just pawned her boyfriend's boots, might not be carrying around a, a piece of a silk screen shawl at, at the time. So, so those little, so those, there's a little, those nuggets that were thrown out um, yeah. at, at and, uh, the and Ripper community. Say for example, and we have no idea, Kosminski and Edo's met and he was a client I mean, it's one of those things that we don't know how, um, if it is sperm, that it got onto the shawl. And say this is actually Edo's shawl, and she did meet Kosminski. How do we know that it, he wasn't the ripper, but he was a client? I mean, there's all kinds of potential reasons as to why um, the sperm may have got there. So it's, um, it's uh, yeah, they immediately jumping to the fact that that in the best case scenario that this was Edo's shawl and the sperm belonged to Kosminski, there's no reason to say that that was actually, he, he murdered her. Um, it's, yeah, I find the whole thing, um, yeah, it's highly dubious. I think to play, to play devil's advocate just slightly, I think if there was a conclusive uh, result that showed with 100% certainty that there was uh, Edo's DNA on the shawl and Kosminski's, and if there was no question about that i think for a lot of people that would you know that would kind of wrap it up mm. at least from my perspective because he was you know such a prominently named suspect indeed um yeah. you know and for so. all we know maybe he was but this paper does not prove that right right that's, exactly that's the problem yeah right it's um yeah there's a lot there's a, a lot of issues with the paper so i mean uh, one thing that would be very interesting to do would be to be able to type the dna of of both the descendant 
uh, both the descendants, both of Kosmiski's sister, but and also of of Edo's, and just to get an idea of what sort of mitochondrial DNA type, and um, and then go back and do the analysis properly, do you, even just from from those two individuals, would be an interesting thing to do. Thank you very much for your contribution. No problem. I hope <laughs> very much. Great. Okay, right. I'll chat to you. Bye. Thank you, Professor King. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.